0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sanjukta Sundarasan about her new book, Partisan Aesthetics, Modern Art and India's Long Decolonization. Welcome, Sanjukta. Hi. Hi. Delighted to be here. Can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, well, thank you, Holiday, for this opportunity to speak about the book. Um, a bit about myself. I I grew up, let's say I was born and brought up in India, I um, in Calcutta, in eastern India, uh, where I studied till my um, bachelor's uh, degree in history. And then I moved to Delhi to complete my MPhil and uh, MA and MPhil in history. And this is sort of important to kind of uh, uh, sh- show the the tension between history and art history in my work. Uh, so for seven years, I did history. And then I was increasingly working on artists and trying to relate somehow historical questions with those of, um, you know, <clears throat> how artists think, how they practice, what intrigues them, what obsesses them. So um, from my work on 19th century and 20th century graphic satire in my MPhil dissertation. I remember my supervisor telling me, I think it's better you apply to art history for a PhD. And um, that's what happened. So I applied to University College London, um, where my supervisor was not a South Asianist, but he worked on early 20th century, you know, uh, Marxism and modernism in the context of the United States. Um, so the project at that point of time was around modern art and politics in India, but primarily it was around left-wing aesthetics. So yeah, that's what happened. And I started my PhD in the UK in art history, working on the left and visual arts. So yeah, that's what it has been. And um, and then <clears throat> after the PhD, I moved to the Netherlands teaching at Leiden University in um, Asian Studies. And uh, in 2021, I moved to art history uh, department in uh, the University of Amsterdam. So that's what it has been. So there is a kind of cacophony of history and art history and what is called area studies in my work. So um, that's, that's that's more or less the scope, I think, um, and in and out of different um, genres of fields, I would say, and of course, different countries and so on. That's what um, informs the work, yeah.
0: And so tell us how you came to write this particular book.
1: Well, partisan aesthetics, to begin with, my thesis was not framed as partisan aesthetics. It was uh, uh, geared towards, I um, back in the early 2000s, I saw this exhibition in Delhi, about around the works of a um, now often talked about artist Chitta Prasad, a communist artist whose works uh, were lost for a very long time. <clears throat> Nobody knew about him other than his friends in you know the depths of the party circuits, communist party circuits. But somehow, with the growth of the private art world the art market in India in the 1990s, uh, his work started coming into the market, steered by certain famous galleries like the Delhi Art Gallery and auction houses and so on. And around 2004-05, they started staging these exhibitions in Delhi, where you would suddenly get into, you know, you will get exposed to a plethora of uh, like a miscellaneous body of material, right? So from political prints, to old um, Hindi film industry posters, to um, different objects. So it's it's a conglomerate, uh, as it were, of objects. And at the exhibition, I remember seeing works by Jitta Prasad, who I, I was familiar with his iconography, but not his name uh, that much. <clears throat> and that familiarity came from uh, you know, uh, seeing graffiti in the streets of Calcutta. Calcutta was a communist, uh, was under communist government for 30 years, 30, 30 35 years. So the, the visual iconography of protest I was familiar with, but the artist I wasn't, right? So uh, I saw these works and I wondered why there is no art historical conversation, even historical conversation around this genre of political um, art or, let's say, political iconography or subversive iconography. So my thesis project began with Chitta Prasad. I thought, okay, I'm going to work on his famine works from the 1940s. But when I started the work, you know, I, I guess all of us go through this when you begin the work, you have an idea, and then just it becomes something completely different as you start prodding the material. And I I realized that questions of the political, the social, the socialist, whatever we call it, in the 1940s, are basically animating and activating ideas that were there uh, let's say from the 1920s and these conversations exceed the visibility of the artist itself so the artist itself in other words uh, himself in other words is a part of a larger uh, potential story and my project then became trying to uh, trying to give room to what that potential story is um, in the thesis itself it became about dialogues between ideas of or let's say shifting notions of modernity in the field of visual art and also ideas of the people and the popular in politics. So I started looking at how artists um, from the 1920s onwards actually, so I expanded, decentered the 1940s as it were to both 1920s and 30s and further down into 1950s and 60s. And with that scale, I tried to look at how ideas of political were developing, and how the Communist Party in India was trying to capture that space of uh, political art. So that's what uh, that's what, and how how modern art uh, enters and uh, deals with this question of the political. So that is what the thesis uh, was on. But these ideas, as I look back and speak. The political comes up as a, sh- a more sharpened idea. Um, in the thesis itself, I'm not sure how far I managed that, but most certainly by while com- converting the thesis to a manuscript, the book itself, uh, the political really emerged as, um, how can I put this, a, a kind of a protagonist, as it were, to how are you going to conceptualize um, artistic production Uh, during a period of political transition. And I then ended up uh, thinking about the idea of partisan aesthetics and uh, the long decolonization. But uh, before I go into that, maybe I could say what what really drove the um, making of the book um, and finalizing it. Um, Some of the ideas that really became strong in my head was how to foreground visual art as an archive. uh, which is to say, not only uh, use art as uh, modes of illustrating other histories, but actually using visual imagination, conversations, and uh, uh, the imaginary itself in the field of visual art as an entry point to think about wider political, cultural, or intellectual histories. So, using entering the intellect, the field of intellectual history or cultural history through the terms set by the aesthetic. So that's one thing I was interested in doing. Um, The other thing that drove partisan aesthetics as it developed was how to connect the locational, the particular, uh, the the regional with that of the transnational and vice versa. So uh, instead of going with um, a national story, let's say, uh, Indian modernism or Nigerian modernism or Egyptian modernism, so on and so forth. How do we use the particular, the, the the locational story to not only decenter the national, but also show how the transnational, the global, is really filtered into? The, um, into the site of the of, 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 a, of a locational locationally particular site, and how uh, basically the transnational is a local language too. Uh, you know, so that is one thing I wanted to capture, and that's very important because as we develop ways of uh, decentering Euro Euro American or Eurocentric um, narratives, we at least in post-colonial studies, with the idea of post-colonial modernism, often we are slipping into the nation as a framework of... Not slipping into, I think we are holding on to uh, the nation as a framework of thinking about um, the post-colonial. And this is something that I I really wanted to uh, displace, not to slip into the global, but actually to connect what I, what I see as transnational with the locational. So that's one thing. Um, another critical point would be... Um, at this stage, to highlight that one of the things that drove me, and I really had to um, (laughs) learn to be comfortable with this, the idea of contradiction and fragmentation, because when you are working on the idea of political art, you go to your artist or you go to your critic and you uh, you look for a stable affirmation of a political ideology, but you don't find that. There is no stability in political, um, political affiliation or party affiliation. So the wider idea of a left-wing commitment is a very fluid, ambivalent, rich, nonetheless, uh, mode of affiliation. So, and many of the papers of these people are fragmented. Their affiliations are fragmented. So at one point, I had to figure out a way of how to become comfortable with contradictory statements and a fragmented position or a fragmented archive. So one of the ways in which partisan aesthetics had to, let's say, become comfortable in its own skin was to then make contradiction and fragmentation a method. Uh, So not use affirmation and celebration, which is often something that dominates art history writing at least, but really try to develop a room where uh, we, as we write histories of hitherto marginalized areas, subjects, uh, groups, we can really be comfortable with fragmentation and and and, and contradiction. So that's one thing. Um, and the last point would be, and 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 that's something many of us are trying to do. And it's a very rich potential there is how to think in conceptual and um, and and uh, theoretical ways about art making from the global south. So how do we actually develop vocabularies of uh, theorizing what what would be those vocabularies, what would be those terms, how can we really um, develop theories that can speak to multiple sides of the Global South. Uh, so partisan aesthetics, I'm not saying partisan aesthetics does it, but it's definitely, in my case, it's an opening bid, uh, let's say, towards doing that. Uh, so that's more or less um, uh, something overarching about the book, if you will, you know. Um, so, Yeah.
0: And so you come into the book by laying out a lot of these really foundational ideas for what is going to come later on in the book, including the idea of partisan aesthetics itself. Could you describe to us what you mean by that term?
1: Yes, Um like i said i came to the idea of partisan aesthetics fairly late in the research and that's important because it kind of had to be <laughs> wrenched out of that cacophony of uh, of of uh, contradictions you know uh, so partisan aesthetics as a framework is about contradiction uh, my entry point in the book uh, so the introduction ended up being very long uh, and it it amazes me now when I try to teach from the book. I always think that, uh, that you know, it's hard to teach a chapter uh, without the introduction. <laughs> so I guess the introduction in that sense uh, sets the stage in more ways than one. Um, my entry point in the book has been the famine, the Bengal famine of 1943, uh, which happened along the eastern frontiers of the... Um, uh, uh, Allied Army, the easternmost uh, outpost of the Allied Army in 1943, um, and it was notorious for being man-made. So it was caused not by uh, absence of food, but a crisis of access to the food. And of course, economists like um, Amartya Sen, etc., have written about it. His Nobel Prize-winning research in poverty and famine in India in the 80s was on the uh, on, on the Bengal famine. So. Uh, the famine for me became an entry point, not beco- not as an originary point that, you know, the famine comes and since then art is different. But to me, the famine almost became a kind of hinge to think about how wider ideas of modernity were transforming and how the famine becomes a way of um, organizing visual thinking. Uh, So the famine is also important, A, because it had an impact on visual art. It had an impact on visuality, rather, and how artists uh, and and, and writers and performers grappled with that transformed visuality of hunger, Uh, but also because it allowed the Communist Party of India to enter the space of cultural politics in a particular way. And why is that important? Uh, it's important because in the 1930s, the party was banned. So as new socialist ideas were spreading in the 1930s, the Communist Party in itself was underground. Um, and it, it mobilized people through different social, cultural platforms. So there is a kind of um, a, a passive politics that's going on there. Um, when Germany attacked Soviet Union in the early 1940s, that's when the Communist Party of India... Uh, kind of uh, uh, enters into this political quandary. They are legalized on one hand because they support the imperial war effort uh, because in the defense of the Soviet Union, as it were. But at the same time, they are marginalized completely in national politics because they are supporting the British war effort as opposed to the National Congress under Gandhi who have the Quit India Movement and there is civil disobedience, right? So for the party, it becomes very important to then develop An alternative political, if you will, a political that is not tied to active attack on uh, the British government or the colonial government, but a kind of passive attack. And that that space of passive politics uh, is that space of culture. So the famine becomes one way, one, uh, one, uh, how do I say this, trigger maybe, that allows the party to develop a space for activism social activism, relief work, uh, cultural activism. It uh, reaches out to artists, writers, established uh, uh, cultural figures, even academics, um, cultural thinkers, if you will, and tries to develop what is called uh, what, is, what has been retrospectively called the Marxist cultural movement. I can talk about that later, but what's important is to understand how the famine becomes uh, what I have called in the book a conjuncture. Uh, a conjuncture is most definitely not an originary point, but a conjuncture is a moment that uh, through crisis, via crisis in the Gramscian sense, uh, triggers possibilities, triggers multiple forces to act a am- uh, Act upon each other. What was interesting to me, of course, this is the 1940s, which is the the the, the you know the, a climactic closing decade of anti-colonial movement in India, and the famine with its completely different politics, where, where the left is both supporting the colonial government and trying to develop a wider anti-imperialist um, a critique at the same point at same time, uh, trying to develop its own forms of internationalism, and then of course 1947 partition and uh, and independence, of course. It does, the 1940s anyway, is a conjunctural decade. So my point was to see how the famine triggers that conjuncture in a particular way. And uh, I went back to the Gramscian idea of the conjuncture Via Stuart Hall, really, to whom a conjuncture is not just a singular moment, but a dynamic of contradictions and difference in the Gramscian um, line. But it has what he called a circular temporality. So a conjuncture recurs; huh? it recurs across time. It recurs in afterlives through memory, memorialization. So there is a way in which the conjuncture is not just about the singularity of an event, in this case the famine, but it's also about the circularity, if you will, of its afterlives. So how does this memory of the famine, or let's say the shadow of the famine, keep recurring? So that, to me, the famine was an entry point to also conceptualize that conjuncture. Now, that conjuncture in itself, like I said, generated an aesthetic. It generated an aesthetic by putting pressure on how, what are the values of beauty in art, uh, what is the value of, um, or let's say, how can the nation be visualized? So, you know, in anti-colonial movements, visualizing the nation is an integral part of cultural imagination. So how is the nation visualized? So it definitely puts pressure on that. There are new um, values of vision that come up. And some of these things I'm saying because you also see this in art criticism from the period. And also um, what comes up time and again in the writings on both from the 1930s and of course the 1940s is how ideas of how questions of place, location, context and the everyday would be captured in art. What are the new values of uh, values of uh, what, what? And you often see these vocabularies of new nationalism or new sensibilities of truth that. Uh, critics are trying to develop as they try and understand what is this new aesthetic of realism. They don't want to use the term realism, but they try to nuance it: subjective realism or new realism. A lot of uh, vocabularies you see. So that aesthetic, there is an aesthetic dimension to that conjuncture. Uh, What's important is to understand this conjuncture did not produce a singular art movement. It produced, let's say, a a collective or conglomerate of vocabularies. And uh, how to write about that conglomerate is also something that partisan aesthetics tries to get into. Um, The next point, of course, is that there is a political dimension to this conglomerate. There is a political dimension to this aesthetic. What is that dimension? Uh, Though I work with the left and left-wing imagery or left-wing aesthetics, like I said already, finding a singular affiliation became very hard. The closer I looked, I found that there were multiple Uh, modalities at play. There was projection on famous artists. There were enlisting of uh, young artist documenters, artist reporters. There were new art collectives that were coming up and joining the Communist Party in certain platforms and rejecting the Communist Party in other platforms. So this kind of vacillation one had to make sense of. So I kind of um, allowed myself to think about what does being and becoming political mean, even when we talk about aesthetics and the left? Huh? So how do we, uh, how do we really uh, uh, pluralize and provincialize the idea of the left, if you will? And, of course, uh, how these plural modalities of the political shape the wider question of modernism and decolonization. So modernism, the, the imagination of modernism and modern art during decolonization is one of contradiction uh and and uh one of uh um how do i say this one of difference and not assimilation with the nation state this is what this is i guess one of the point so in all these things the idea of the political really like i said emerges as a protagonist um so uh in the book itself the um, the political did not become the representation of hunger in art, uh, but it rather looking at the historical agency uh, hunger had in uh, transforming and entangling two different threads during decolonization. One is the shifting ideas of modernity in the mid-20th century, and the other is shifting dynamics of left-wing politics, because Pre independence and post independence, the destiny of the left also changes in India. So really, um, as a concept, partisan aesthetics does the work of understanding what are the terms. How did left wing? How did art and left wing politics entangle? So it is that how that partisan aesthetics tries to uh, capture. It's most definitely not about propaganda art. Um, I get called in multiple forums these days to talk about this. Of course, partisan aesthetics has a definite affiliation, a definite meaning in the context, let's say, of East European studies, etc. But I have felt the need to assert at multiple points that it is not about propaganda art or even political iconography uh, in art. But uh, my goal is to really uh, give partisan aesthetics A conceptual agency to think about what being and becoming political in art in a particular historical duration can mean. Uh, So it is not just the rupture or conjuncture but the long-dure footprints of a transition and how art keeps grappling with that space of the political. So in a way, it really is uh, looking at art and its relation to the temporality of decolonization. And I really hope that the book is picked up by people who are working on completely different locations, uh, but around maybe issues of crisis or transition, political transition, decolonization in this case, and make sense of the uh, political through uh, this. Um, One other point about that is also to see how, um, how a specifically local event or um, or, a rupture like the famine mobilizes multiple uh, lines of uh, scales of uh, the transnational. So whether that is war, whether that is anti-fascist mobilization, anti-imperialism, transnational solidarities that get activated via uh, the famine and the political culture, and the cultural politics it generates. So, uh, you know, in other words, so much to say that partisan aesthetics is a generative term, maybe, to think about what the political could mean in the field of visual arts. So that would be the, that would be the larger point, I think. Um, but yeah.
0: So within the book, you have it separated into two major themes: the first, dialogues and dissonances covers from 1936 to 1953 and the second post-colonial displacements um, marks especially that transition after independence in 47. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to organize in those terms, but also about the organization that does not exactly match up with just pre- independence, -independence.
1: post-independence? Yeah, sure. Um, The decision, again, this decision was during the writing of the book and not in the original state, and I, I, um, for those of us who are writing books now, and it's worth noting, I rewrote, I think, 40% of the book, because Uh, to then uh, really give room to uh, the question of transition. The pre- and uh, post-independence, I very consciously did not want to organize it in terms of pre- and post-independence because um, the transition means different things for different constituencies. For the left, the transition meant not just the arrival into independence, but uh, a fragmentation of the political moment and the cultural moment of the 1940s too. That itself broke, and that had nothing to do with independence. It had all to do with the transformation in international socialist politics, a a, a severely conservative turn that makes many of the former adherents of the movement move away from it. So the same conjuncture of the 40s produces different kinds of uh, different questions of freedom, as it were. That's something I'm thinking about more. But in the the book now, so the part one, which is called uh, Dialogues and Dissonances, basically wanted to give room to this intense period of the late 1930s to the late 1940s, just one decade, and look at what are the different modalities in which left-wing politics and spaces of modern art are uh, converging. And I identified there uh, three modalities, which then organize each chapter. In part one. Uh, the first one, uh, as you can see, is called a Political Potentiality, where you have a set of um, um, Uh, a set of modernist poets um, and academics and uh, activists writing on a very famous artist at that point of time, Jamini Roy. And uh, as they write on him, you see new registers of um, new vocabularies of the social and the socialist in art emerging. Jamini Roy himself is not a communist, uh, but he um, I can talk about this later, but he develops this space of integrating modernism modern art with uh, with the folk with the uh, and, and that conglomerate of a folk modern imaginary lends many of the marxist poets at that point of time modernist poets and writers at that point of time to project a certain Potentiality of the political on him, where they start talking about how Jamini Roy's art brings about an organic, uh, an integrated, or uh, uh, an organic integration in art, or uh, you know, a socialist revolutionary potentiality in art, so on and so forth. So I track that uh, that space of art critical writing around an artist who is often um, described as. Um, Uh, uh, a a naive urban scroll painter who has given space to the rural uh, scroll paintings in the narratives of modernism, and that's an established narrative. But you have these writers slowly projecting not only a modernist sensibility to Roy, but also the socialist horizons of that modernist sensibility. And now, in retrospect, when we look at Jamini Roy and some of the most critical writings on his modernism, we often look at these writings, but we are we are asking completely different questions. So my questions were uh, tied to how these writings are actually the early stages of the development of what would later be called a progressive vocabulary in um, in art criticism, progressive art. So political potentiality is really that uh, what I have called in the book passive participation in the political, where you have writers who are not necessarily affiliated with the Communist Party but are Marxists nonetheless, most of them who are projecting these ideas on a famous artist and thereby creating that room. The second chapter is uh, around... um, uh, art as Agitator and Organizer, which is about more active authorship of socialist uh, vocabulary in art, where uh, by the time already in 1943 the famine has happened, you have artists who are then um, affiliated who become members of the Communist Party and who are then sent to different parts of Bengal to document the famine, so on and so forth. So there is a more um, kind of active, uh, you know, partisan membership of, of of the of the Communist movement and art that emerges from that. In a nutshell, um, and then concrete contextuality is the third chapter where I look at this vacillating affiliation of a new group of artists, the Calcutta group of artists, who come up during the Bengal famine, who say that you know our values of modern art needs to capture uh, this uh, space of crisis, the space of social rupture, um, at times they are with the party, at times they are not. So for me, the first part of the book really is to capture this question of passive participation, active authorship, and vacillating affiliation. So that's the dialogues and dissonances. That's why I called it dialogues and dissonances. Um, very quickly, the second part of the book, which is titled Post-Colonial Displacements, um, looks at what happens when this moment of dialogue and dissonances dissipates. And that dissipation happens, one could say, after 1947, after independence, but one could also say it happens not only due to independence, but also the left-wing cultural movement or the left's cultural priorities, political priorities changing. So many of the members of the cultural movement who Questioned the completeness of the independence, uh, you know, uh, called for economic freedom, social freedom. Uh, many members of the Communist Party were jailed by late 1940s in India uh, by the Nehruvian government. The movement itself dissipated completely A, due to uh, incarceration, but also due to the fact that many. Um, uh, cultural performers who were happy to align with the left in the 40s as part of a wider anti-fascist kind of anti-imperialist conglomerate, uh, found the new uh, Zdanovich turn in the socialist movement uh, global uh, in, in the USSR, in particular, more widely globally, they found that disturbing and they removed themselves from the party. So the cultural movement dissipates completely. So my question in the in the second part of the book was then, what happens to socialist art when that cohesive movement is uh, fragmented, uh, displaced? So that's uh, chapter four very quickly, and then five, uh, the last chapter looks at um, displacements. So the, the previous chapter was about the displacement of uh, the lefts. Uh, cultural agenda and the last chapter is how the displacements of the 1940s both due to the uh, both for the famine and then partition you know with large scale uh, um, the migration crisis refugees uh, refugee exodus, exodus so how that appears constantly in the visual imagination of the location in this case of uh, the eastern part of uh, India in uh, in post-colonial what was West Bengal, and how uh, that imagery of displacement keeps putting pressure on what modernist imagination will come from that location. And sometimes that modernist imagination does not sit well with the national imagination of a post-colonial modernism. So I talk about a disenchantment that is shaped by displacement and how that, you know. So, so the second part of the book really uh, looks at how displacement and disenchantment um, not only is a historical uh, is a question of historical transition, but it's also a question of cultural transition. And if you look at it in that way, maybe one could look at how the idea of the post colonial itself needs to be uh, displaced, or, or if not, decentered. Um, so that's that's what the book then methodologically tries to arrive at uh, through these organizations. So I guess part one and part two are meant to. Then um, also activate how the partisan is also tied to particularity, particularity of the story, particularity of the archive, the granularity of a meta-story, but also particularity of location that can uh, displace what uh, you know, displace hegemonic stories, if you will. So that's that's the, in other words, the logic for uh, organizing it in that way yeah
0: And if we could just come back to thinking through how what you're doing in each of these chapters because I think it's really helpful to understand this structure and how you are using this structure really very thoughtfully in terms of how you're engaging with the this question really of the post colonial and what that means. Um, but I also want to make sure to really hear your, your thoughts and your argument about each of these pieces individually. So I think you described to us for Gemini Roy this notion that you elaborate of the passive participation of art in the political mobilization of culture. Do you want to add to what you were saying about that? Um, Yeah, I guess, because, um, you know,
1: uh, with the growth of... In art histories from the global south we often come up with we focus on particular movements and we foreground them as protagonists of modernism from the from the area uh, and so on for example in the context of Indian uh, modernism you hear often the story of the progressive artists and the uh, progressive artist groups and so on who came up very critically in the late 1940s at the moment of arrival into independence and there is a narrative around their uh, you know I uh, ideas of secularism, modernism, internationalism, globalism via their art. One of the things that I encountered while working is that once you start moving away from iconic groups or um, uh, overtly talked about groups, though, of course, one can do way more than what is being done, of course. Once you start looking at the granular details of art-critical conversations, you can see a completely different genealogy. For example, the vocabulary of progressive art appears in the 1930s in the context of literature often, uh, as is well known, but in the context of visual art too, as literary critics and writers and poets are writing on, let's say, an artist like Roy. Uh, So for me, it became important to take back the vocabulary of progressive to not only to the 30s, but also connect it to a kind of cusp between Marxism and modernism. So modernist writers who are talking about about emancipation of form, emancipation of poetry, etc., how they bring that sensibility to thinking about visual art when... Nobody, none of the artists um, in the field of visual art are actively talking about socialism or Marxism. So for me, that that um, that different entry point into lineages or genealogies of the of politics becomes important. Um, that's also important because often we relate left wing aesthetics to questions of propaganda, and here you have not propaganda but a discourse around form. What is going to be the form of a uh, form of socialism, as it were. Um, It's also important that these writings are not by critics, but they are by modernist uh, modernist poets or academics, and uh, how these spaces are gradually uh, infiltrated seems a negative word let's say percolated by uh, by a new young left wing activists who try and enlist membership to the Red Bo- Book Club and so on and so forth and how really the organic formation of a socialist aesthetic takes place socially. So more book reviews on socialist, uh, socialist uh, politics, more memberships of international socialist organizations and you see membership groups. Growing. None of these people are members of the Communist Party, which in the 30s is underground. So you see a completely different social formation of an aesthetic, left wing aesthetic, taking place. So that's something I would like to highlight from, uh, from this book, from this chapter. Uh, and particularly, and you know, I sometimes get told that I have not talked about Jamini Roy's art enough, and I feel that of course, but then people have talked about his art, what we often do not get to talk about is this wider conversation around him. And he's a member of these spaces, you know, he goes and attends all these social gatherings, and he's intrigued by these vocabularies around him. So Sometimes he participates, sometimes he doesn't, but he's just happy to see this vocabulary around him so later when he's invited by the anti-fascist writers and artists collective to come and speak to their different conferences he goes at times but when Calcutta is bombed in 1941-42 then he just stops going he doesn't just doesn't leave home and you know while around him this kind of vocabulary is growing outside you know so uh, that space of the tension also between the artist and writing around him uh, in this case um, is something that's that has value to me you know and i hope it will have some value to other people also um yeah i think that's that's uh, that's an interesting thing i would say i would like to highlight the 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 dialogue between modernism and marxism in the 1930s and early 1940s before there is a sorry before there is a more Hardening political position in the mid 40s, you know, that's just what I wanted to say. Yeah,
0: well, and so then you move into, in comparison, the active authorship of socialist visual reportage in the 1940s. Can you describe that?
1: Um, yes, uh, this the active authorship, like I said already, is about. During the famine, the Communist Party, that is legal at that point of time, enlisting the membership of young artists, you know, uh, wannabe artists, even uh, performers, etc., writers for sure. And one of these artists that I kind of began this conversation with and my entire research with, uh, Chitta Prasad. Is um, a student in the easternmost parts, in the in the war in the war area in Chittagong, and he is looking at anti-Japanese kind of um, uh, politics, anti-fascist resistance. And the general secretary of the Communist Party spots him there, brings him to Calcutta, and later to Bombay, which is the party headquarters, and then starts giving him these assignments of going to the hinterlands, if you will, and documenting resistance, documenting, um, you know. Uh, political protest. Of course, till 1945, while the war war was on, the Communist Party, like I said, was supporting the war effort. And the famine then became a way of mobilizing a kind of sensibility of anti-imperialism, um, anti-capitalism, that kind of um, uh, vocabulary. And you see Chitta Prasad's works on hunger uh, not only across the Communist Party's organs like People's War, etc., but also in his diaries, etc., where he's trying to develop an iconography of hunger. And later he says that, you know, I wanted to do more, but time was of importance and I had to make these quick sketches. And later in life, uh, which is what I do in Chapter 4 later, I can mention that, he tries to develop a more sustainable, long-term formalist iconography out of that. But in the 40s, it's just haste. Um, Another uh, uh, point of difference in this chapter is that there is a difference between pre-1945 and post-1945 iconography, because in 45, when the war ends, uh, the Communist Party could comfortably change its line from support of the colonial government or the war effort, let's say, to a, a full throttle uh, resistance. So you see a new kind of resistance vocabulary coming up in 1945-46, where there is a marriage between expressionism, grotesque realism and and this kind of socialist uh, internationalism. So you have workers' movements, Afro-Asian, uh, inter-Asian solidarity movements, etc., being given visual form. Uh, by an artist like Chitta Prasad and in the pages of what was then people's age. So it changed from people's war to people's age, the the name of the organ, party organ. And you see these imageries and, um, you know, one way is to talk about them is to say how working class bodies or peasant bodies are given this kind of radical socialist form. Uh, The other is also to look at what international socialist iconography which is heavily dependent on the image of the worker in the decolonizing context really picks up the image of the peasant or the image of the the, the, the indigenous figure as an entry point into um, thinking about what socialist would be and in the pages of people's age, people's war I saw these reportage from different peasant conferences that were happening and you would often see these clay um, replicas of the works of vera mukina as it were where it is not the worker but uh, a farmer or a peasant who's rising up with uh, you know uh, in that kind of um, uh, in that kind of moment of uh, resistance with a hammer and a sickle and so on so there is a way in which post colonial socialist iconography can be a uh, narrative of post colonial socialist iconography can be developed if we look at these images very quickly uh, closely what is important in this chapter is however a third, an important point for me in the larger context of the book, is that artists like Chitta Prasad and others, a young Shomnath Hor who later became a very famous, uh, a very famous um, artist in India. What is interesting is that they suffer from, are made, are made to suffer from what can be called paradoxes of visibility. So you have party critics writing um, on all kinds of other artists, but not on them, and. Um, Developing vocabularies like lower order art and higher order art in the spaces of left wing aesthetics, where, uh, you know, the party artists, the active authorship artists are often gatherers of raw material who are doing documentation work. Nobody writes on them. But their art then becomes the founding ground uh, to basically their task is to provide material to artists of higher order to develop more sophisticated vocabulary. So there is a paradox here while you have these actively communist artists going and doing this kind of work, they are never written about. They are shown widely in peasant congresses and conferences and so on in party organs, but there is no art discourse developing around them. That, to me, was an important point. Um, so the celebration of Chitta Prasad in the 1990s is a completely different matter. But in the 40s, uh, it, that was not there, you know, so, uh, or even after, that was not there. So that paradox was important for me to uh, arrive at.
0: So, you then move into the Calcutta group and what you describe as the vacillating affiliations to the social and the socialist. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, there it's this slippage in and out of. Um, you know, the slippage of the social in and out of the social list. So you have a bunch of artists who are very moved by the complete uh, disintegration of... uh, the social under famine, millions of refugees coming in, the streets of Calcutta being overrun by, uh, you know, dead bodies and food queues. And you're aware that the root of this famine is a crisis of access. It's this black marketeering and profiteering during the war. So there is a social crisis. You're aware of that. You want to capture that in art. Uh, So I opened this chapter with this cartoon from, that talks about modern art exhibitions in the 1940s where everybody was talking about you know skeletal figures and hunger and so on and so forth and how that really you have this figure of a nationalist Poet who uh, who's who was famous for idealizing idealizing the nation, he's gasping out of his own portrait. He's and he's t- totally traumatized by the visions of modern art that he sees in front of him, where the nation is not a land of bounty but a land of death. Um, so many artists, in other words, were depicting this. For me, it was important to really uh, loosen this this. This, um, this overarching umbrella use of social realism and really find out the ideological textures therein. So, the Calcutta group then, uh, which was a short lived group really, 1943 to 40, uh, 53, to look at how they engaged with the social and socialist uh, at different points of time. And that chapter uh, really looks at their uh, commentary on realism, on uh, internationalism. On primitivism, even as they try to uh, as they try to grapple with that, Calcutta group is also important because they span both sides of the they are actually one of the first artist groups who really foreground the vocabulary of progressive way before the the Bombay progressives, but the group itself had very little unity. Uh, members keep shifting, they themselves, re, you know, are removed completely from the left by the late 1940s. And they uh, many of their members look back and reflect on the progressive in different ways. Uh, they completely dissociate themselves, or they say, you know, at that one point of time, it was this and that. And you had former members of the, not members, but former figures of the Marxist cultural movement, like Bishnu De, who is a Marxist, poet writing on them and really capturing this transition in their self-perception. So that that transition itself, self-perception, becomes very important in the early 1950s when you have art critics of the newly independent nation-state reflecting on what progressive should mean. So the third chapter really is about changes, tracking the changes in the vocabulary of progressive art from the let's say early 1940s to early 1950s particularly in dialogue with how far the progressive would be removed from its originary kind of uh, roots uh, or lineages in uh, socialism or uh, socialism and modernism you know so that and how the nation state and its visions of a of a national modernism would gradually begin to dominate the space of uh, progressive modern art really so there is a, so in a way one could say it's a dialogue between the progressive and the national um, uh, and that's how I try to capture it in this chapter through th- uh, the Calcutta group
0: You then move into this theme of post-colonial displacements and the idea of the afterlives of left-wing political art in Naruban India
1: um yes sure that afterlife like i said is about what happens to left-wing socialist art after the moment of the high it's high noon of the cultural movement in the 40s and i look at how artists this question of dissolution, right? So the question of how, when the moment dissipates, uh, the movement uh, kind of disintegrates, people move apart. And people like Chitta Prasad, who I return to in this chapter, become complete loners, uh, sitting in one part of Bombay, not engaging with the new, newly developing spaces of modern art in Bombay, completely disowned by the party. And he himself disowns the party. Uh, but then in isolation, He tries to go back to his political imagery from the 40s and trying to develop new aesthetic registers for that kind of Uh, that kind of uh, socialist uh, iconography. He doesn't get any patronage from the party. He gets uh, patronage from uh, his friends in Eastern Europe, in Czechoslovakia, in the United States, um, uh, so on and so forth, who send him money and he tries to develop these albums around, uh, you know, uh, for uh, for children. Around child labor, around uh, industrial labor, so on and so forth. Um, But he, you know, these are all hardly ever seen, hardly ever shown, um, till they are discovered much later. So this chapter really tries to show what happens to socialist artists when there is no active patronage and what kind of socialist imagery emerges out of that pressure of um, pressure of dissolution. Uh, What's very interesting in Chitta Prasad at this point of time is that um, there is a way in which he he never leaves Bombay, but at the same time, he develops these long-term contacts with uh, the, uh, the socialist, uh, the, the spaces of socialist uh, aesthetic in Eastern Europe, in the United States, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, later in the 60s, his works would be published um, by the UNESCO uh, for the International Defense of, uh, International Organization for the Defense of Children, so on and so forth. But um, I was very interested in looking at what happens to socialist art in absentia. You know, what is an absent, what do we do with an absent archive? So when he's not visible, what work is being done um, uh, through in in that shielded way? And also an artist like Chitta Prasad, who in that sense is a failure in the uh, 50s and 60s. So what kind of questions can we ask of um, of failure uh, instead of uh, prominence and um, Affirmation really. Uh, Chita Prasad's works in the 50s, which were never shown. Uh, if you plot them, you'll see uh, fascinating works around the international peace movement, around Cold War, around the darker sides of the nation of, of the post-colonial nation states. So child labour, the vagaries of industrial labour, landlessness, uh, recurring famines, and he goes and documents them. But then you know nobody displays his works. So that dissonance between the zeal of an artist to do this and struggling with invisibility, to some extent, self-imposed invisibility. These are the registers that kind of dominate this chapter and which I try to put in dialogue with Uh, uh, wider art discourse developing in the country where there is a stress on uh, moving away from social um, socialist kind of um, actively socialist affiliations but focusing more on and this is something that you will see globally right so there is a focus on humanism as this kind of almost depoliticized sense of the social uh, which will then counter a very Cold War-ridden vocabulary of socialist art. So you see that in India, um, which is a un- gains a unique form under Nehruvian socialism, where he goes back the. the, the, the there is a kind of dominance of the image of man, but a depoliticized image of man. whereas you have former left wing artists like Chitta Prasad who also hold on to that image of uh, man, quote unquote, uh, with and struggle with retrieving its political nuances, right? So I look at this how, the idea of the social goes through depoliticization or the idea of socialist goes through depoliticization in the early post-colony, in this case, India. Of course, in other post-colonial contexts, even in South Asia, it's a very different story. Uh, India is quite a unique case here.
0: So you then end with a last chapter about Calcutta as a new post-colonial site. Can you describe that?
1: Yes. Uh, So the last chapter really is um, about artists operating in uh, Calcutta in the 1950s and 60s, a site that is hardly ever talked about in conversations around modern art and with reason, because not much happens. Uh, Whatever happens does not enter national spaces of uh, Delhi or Bombay, and um, artists are often... There is no singular movement as such that is emerging, though there are art groups, there is a struggle around patronage, uh, etc. But when I go to this site and I ask myself what questions can I ask from this space of marginality um, without wanting to bring the marginal into the national canon because that was not my interest at all, I was interested in staying with the marginal and see how the marginal can be a productive site and really allow these obsessions of artists to come out and one thing I saw was that there was an obsession with the image of um, hunger for sure the image of the refugee the image of the destitute or the urban texture as one of disintegration um, like a palimpsestic of disintegration and political utopia uh, because you have to understand Calcutta in the 60s and 70s is very much a place where far left agitation Maoist politics is gaining ground Around. So I kind of begin with this uh, undulating image of Calcutta as a city that is, you know, animated by crisis and exuberance and revolution, and um, and. Uh, you know, uh, a texture of life, that, a context that's very much uh, pressing upon uh, whatever imagination will emerge out of it. So I called it the aesthetic of displacement um, by looking at this group of artists who emerged, the Calcutta painters and the Society of uh, Contemporary Artists, who are still around now, the second one, Many of these artists would gain prominence later, but if I stick to the 1960s, which is what I wanted to do, many of them, you see them obsessively returning to the question of uh, displacement and trying to arrive at aesthetic forms that will make them give modernist vocabulary to this very locational experience of displacement. So to me, that obsession and trying to develop an imagery uh, is a very productive ground rather than identifying a famous artist in that. Um, But um, so, so to me, that idea of what signature, the context and locational particularity then has in dismantling not only the national signature but also this Cold War um, division between the social and the abstract because many of these artists are genuinely interested in abstraction they are genuinely interested in abstract imagery but they grapple with removing How to remove the social, and they don't want to remove the social. Many of them talk about this pressure of the social, pressure of the subject, so on. Uh, One of them said that you know this commitment to figurative art is not a negation of abstraction, but it is the twilight zone of ambiguity, which is midway between figuration and non-figuration. This is Poritosh Sen, a very uh, famous artist at that point of time. So. So he says that he wants to capture the plast- element of plastic violence, the rich saturation of color, etc. So I was interested in looking at how artists were articulating this tension between uh, social, social and abstract in their own works, while they remain rooted and committed to uh, f- uh, giving aesthetic form to displacement. So that's that's something that I tried to do in the last chapter by you know staying close to uh, this question of marginality a marginal site or a marginal idiom uh, in these years, which is the idiom of realism and the idiom of the social.
0: Well, Sanjuta, we have taken up a lot of your time. Before we sign out, can you tell us what you are working on now? What I'm working
1: on now, uh, yeah, I think I'm still loitering in the 1950s to 70s period. <laughs> uh, but now I'm moving into the spaces of the transnational. Uh, my entry point still will be South Asia. I'll be looking at um, um, mainly uh, East Pakistan, so India, East and West Pakistan. East Pakistan later, of course, becomes Bangladesh. So I'm looking at how artists in in, in in the subcontinent uh, engaged with the question of uh, freedom, um, the freedom and in terms of political freedom, independence, but also freedom as liberation, um, emancipation, so on and so forth, and how they developed aesthetic vocabularies to uh, grapple with the, the contradictions and dialectics of freedom as it were. So it's not a well-articulated one yet, but it's all under... You know, I end partisan aesthetics with uh, the, the 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 epilogue is called Towards Aesthetics of Decolonization. So that's what I'm working on, aesthetics of decolonization. <laughs> it is a bro- broader project, but um, I'm really interested in uh, going deeper into this idea of aesthetics and freedom, knowing fully well that freedom is such a fraught term. So... I guess that is going to be my learning process now, so slowly too. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's 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 again uh, entering the transnational through the locational in this case of um, India and Pakistan.
0: Yeah, I guess that that's that's what I'm working on. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us, Sanjukta.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.